Christmas, everyone. It's awesome to see a lot of you all out there. It's particularly wonderful to see Neva here tonight. I don't know if most of you all know. She's, she is due to deliver today. And uh, I've been kind of secretly hoping that somehow if I go long enough, um, maybe we'll have the most exciting Christmas Eve service we've ever had, so we'll see. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> it, it could happen, it could happen. Well, I was 11. How many of y'all are out there that are 11 right now? Any 11-year-olds out there? Okay. I was 11 when I distinctly remember a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, couldn't stop talking about a movie that he had just gone to see and just kept nagging me and nagging me and nagging. You have, you have to go see Star Wars. You have to go see it. And uh, finally, after a couple of weeks, he convinced me and I went. Uh, I was not a, not a sci-fi guy, but you know, this, you know, I just, he was so compelling that I, I, I had to go and see it. I went. And mind blown, saw it, as many of you all probably can attest to that, that uh, got to see it in the theaters for the first time back then. And um, I quickly became a sci-fi guy. And, um, and I, it was interesting about that movie. That movie was just Star Wars. I, I don't recall a single person ever once for years ever referring to it by its actual title, which is A New Hope. I remember many years later, somebody came up to me, he goes, you know, you know, Star Wars isn't the actual, you know, you know that it's actually titled A New Hope? And I was just like, well, are you, you know, don't even say that. That, that. that movie is Star Wars. And for me, that movie will always be Star Wars. Then, you know, then of course, uh, when I was 14, uh, Empire Strikes Back came out. And and those were in the days where you really had to learn to wait. We learned to wait when I was young. So you had to, you know, I was just, I was just coming out of elementary school when uh, Star Wars came out. And then when The Empire Strikes Back, I was just coming out of middle school. I was just graduating from high school. I was graduating the month that, uh, that Return of the Jedi came out. And that was, that was to conclude the whole trilogy series. It was supposed to end there, but of course that wasn't, that wasn't the end as we now know. A couple days ago, my, my wife and I saw episode eight, uh, which is Return, or no, uh, the, the Last Jedi is, was the name of that. But, but before those came out, uh, many people were really itching for, because it wasn't, just, it wasn't just a new hope, it was episode four. So those that were, those that were uh, you know, kind of watchful and, and attentive to things realized, wait, it starts, this, this whole thing is starting with episode four, A New Hope. And so a lot of the fans started like deeply desiring to see uh, the, you know, what came before. If this is episode four, what did come before? Where did Luke and Leia come from? You know, where, you know, what's up with Yoda? What's up with Darth Vader? Uh, how did he become so Sithy? You know, I mean, all that, you know, there's just like, where, where did it all begin? And, um, and so Star Wars was a, a movie, you know, a series that was in great need of a beginning 
It was a series in need of a beginning. And 16 years later, they tried to give it to us, as some of you all know. And the response uh, is similar to what, what Charlie was referring to today when, uh, when he was talking about the, uh, the building of the temple. The response is sort of like that. You know, the, the young people were weeping because, oh, this is so wonderful. Now we have our Star Wars experience. And the old ones out here were weeping because it was so lame in comparison to what we had experienced. <laughs> It's true, I'm sorry. Um, I, I categorically reject uh, the, the series. And um, I mean, they are OK as movies, but I have blocked them in my mind as having anything to actually do with the real Star Wars. Um, and I, I kind of reserve the right to do that. I mean, I didn't wait. I know a lot of it. I didn't wait that long you know, to accept the fact that in the beginning, there was Jar Jar. Binks. There's just no way. I mean, did any of you <laughs> wait, want to wait that long? You know what I'm talking about. All right. Well, now let's, uh, you didn't come here to hear about Star Wars, so let me, um, um, we're going to reflect a little bit on the, the Christmas story and particularly related to Simeon. And there's just no way we can, can understand or appreciate uh, his response, how Simeon responded to meeting Jesus the way he did in the temple, until we, until we see that the Old Testament, just like Star Wars was a story in need of a beginning, the Old Testament is, is a story that is in desperate need of a conclusion. It needs an ending. And it's full of promises and covenants that are in need of resolution. They are full of prophecies that are in need of fulfillment, questions in need of answers, foreshadows and pointers in need of an object. It has a damsel that is still in distress and in captivity. And there is a hero who has still not entered the scene. And all that ends the Old Testament. And they will all culminate, all of these will culminate in one person, on one day, in one town, a child will be born and the fulfillment of the ages will have arrived. And though his birth was announced by an angelic spectacle, his first entrance as a baby into Jerusalem will be nothing like his triumphal, triumphal last entry into Jerusalem. So that's like his first one, very unnoticed. Given who, he, given who he is, we should expect something more like this, more like what took place in The Lion King. All the animals bowing down to the little cub as the wise baboon holds him up. <laughs> However, had you been in Jerusalem that day, you wouldn't have seen anything different from any other day. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were seen just like every other peasant Jewish parents who were bringing their firstborn son to the temple uh, for them to make a sacrifice for him. But God would not allow this day to entirely go unnoticed. And he would mark it through keeping a promise that he made to a prophet of his in the temple that was there named Simeon, and I think to Anna too. God told him, 
Simeon, God told him that he would not die. He made a special promise to him. He told him that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Messiah, till he had seen the Lord's salvation. And again, you know, I, I, was, I was trying to say that we can't understand his response until we have a good sense of, of where the Old Testament leaves off. And as we think about Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament Israelites were unique among all the people of the earth and that their God was, in fact, the Lord of all. And he spoke to his people and he spoke to his people to draw them. He would speak to his people to teach them and to guide them and to encourage them and to comfort them and to warn them and to test them and to prepare them. And he did this primarily through prophets. And to verify that a prophet was speaking his words, he would also give them knowledge to, de to declare about uh, future events that would take place. God describes himself as the God who declares the end from the beginning. So then, as we would, would logically conclude then, uh, the fulfillment of a prophet's words was the ultimate test that God had spoken and that the prophet was a true prophet. If you have a little example of this, uh, King Ahab did not like this one particular prophet named Micaiah. Micaiah had, had uh, prophesied that, that Ahab, when he went off in this particular battle, would be killed in battle, and Ahab didn't like it. And he said, put this man in prison until I return safely. To which Micaiah, sa Micaiah says, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words. And course, he did not return safely at all. Uh, speaking in God's name is no small deal, and God commanded that, that in the most extreme ways that false prophets were not to be tolerated. As the coming of the Savior into the world would be the premier event of all history, God uh, gave a large amount of prophecies about the Messiah, hundreds and hundreds in fact, so that there would be no lack of evidence and no lack of clarity as to who he was. Um, now, let me just sidestep for one second and, and, and say something about prophet, prophecies that I think may be helpful. Um, Christians claim that the fulfillment, that Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecies is a strong evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and, and we claim that because he perfectly fulfilled, the Bible shows us that he perfectly fulfilled all of the prophecies. And, um, and these claims that Christians make can really only be refuted uh, in two possible ways. There's two possible ways to refute that claim. Both of them require uh, that, that, they're, that, that we would acknowledge that, that something deceptive has taken place. It can be, they can be refuted. The, the first one would be that maybe the prophecies were somehow changed after Jesus lived to fit his life. So Jesus lived his life and, and then later somebody said, okay, let's, let's write some things into the prophecies to match up with the way Jesus lived his life. So let's, so let, let's say, let's just, let's just include there maybe he was born in Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden people read, hey, the prophecies say he was born in Bethlehem. He's, you know, that's Jesus. You know, it's like, you know, that would be, a, that would be trickery. That would be deception to do that. And that would be one particular argument. The other argument would be that maybe Jesus' life was embellished 
to fit the prophecy. So we have these prophecies, and maybe we can just embellish Jesus' life a little bit, include some things about Jesus to show that he is the Messiah, and maybe you could just kind of combine maybe a little bit of both. Maybe the prophecies were embellished, maybe Jesus was embellished a little bit, and, you know, but, but all of these would require uh, some sort of uh, deception in order to pull that off. Um, the, first, the first claim I can say we can, we can absolutely just take off the table altogether, and that, and that particular one would be that the, the prophecies, or, or that uh, uh, Jesus, or, or that the, the, the prophecies were changed. We know that with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls now, that the prophecies were in stone. We, we can read copies of the prophecies that were written 200 years before Jesus was born, and they're the exact prophecies that we read to this day. So we know that the prophecies were not embellished. Those are in stone, and they could not have been embellished. So that option is off the table. The only real option out there is that Jesus' life could somehow have been embellished to show that he fulfilled all the prophecies. But just, just how difficult would that be, particularly if you're trying to sell such a story to eyewitnesses? And I just wanted to give you just a little sense of the, of, of the criteria of the Messiah that would have to be fulfilled perfectly. And if he didn't fulfill it perfectly in every detail, he could not be the Messiah. So that if in any one of these, he doesn't fulfill it, he can't be the Messiah. All right, if he fulfills every single one, but he doesn't fulfill just one, even in its particular detail. And some of these, some of these have some pretty fine detail in it. So let me, I'll just hit you with a few of these. He must be a descendant of David. He must be born in Bethlehem. He must be the firstborn son. He must have somebody who goes before him as a forerunner who is preparing the people for him. And that forerunner must also be a voice that is calling out in the desert. And that forerunner will and will be successful in turning people to righteousness. All right, so, so those so far. He also will be called out of Egypt. So he'll be born in Bethlehem, yet he'll be called out of Egypt, but he'll also be called a Nazarene. He's got to fit all of that. Uh, he, he must get a special anointing by the Holy Spirit. His ministry, he must have a ministry that begins in Galilee. He must speak the wisdom of God with authority. He has to teach in parables, but the people won't, uh, they, they'll have deaf ears when they hear his parables. He must also be meek and lowly. He must also have nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He must be zealous for the Lord's house. He must, he must be presented in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He must be greeted with rejoicing in Jerusalem. He must be confronted by adversaries in a garden. He must be betrayed by a familiar friend. He must be betrayed, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now that's, that's pretty specific. This is not like some Nostradamus type of, of prediction where you could, you could sort of make it mean anything you really want. 30 pieces of silver, not gold, not bronze, but it's silver and it's not 31, it's not 29. If it is, He's not the Messiah. He cannot be. He must fulfill them perfectly. If God really gave these prophecies, then the prophecies must match up perfectly with who he is. The 30 pieces of silver need to be cast into the Lord's house. False witnesses need to rise up against him. He must be silent before his accusers. He's going to be mocked and ridiculed. He'll be spat on. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be stripped before the stares of men. He is... He, he, he's, his garments are going to be parted, and yet they will also cast lots for his clothes. He's going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. 
and yet not one of his bones are going to be broken. He's going to thirst, he's going to be given vinegar for his thirst, he's going to be executed as a criminal, he's going to be buried in a rich man's grave. All of these he has to fulfill perfectly, and, and, th and that has to be sold to eyewitnesses who were there who saw it. Okay, well, not only that, but there's just a few other more problematic requirements according to the prophecies that the Messiah must meet. For starters, he must be born of a virgin, which means, which means Jesus is the only one who's in. I mean, Mary and Joseph are going to have to be in on it. I mean, if, if, this, if this story is deceptive, then those two are wicked. John the Baptist would have to be in on it. If the story isn't true, John the Baptist is wicked. That would also include Peter and John and Paul. And, and everybody who lived in Bethany, you saw him, you know, saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They all, they all would be, have to be in on it. He would have to perform miracles. He would have to have healing powers. He would have to be sinless. Sinless, he'd have to be a sinless lamb in order to bear the sins of others. And he must rise from the dead. Now try selling that story to people who are eyewitnesses. I mean, imagine, you know, doing, hey, uh, uh, man, you remember the time that, that, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? You remember that time? You know, that, that, that after he was dead for four days and he just walked right out of the tomb? Imagine selling that to someone. Like, if it didn't happen, imagine selling that story to somebody, to eyewitnesses. You know, or, or remember, imagine the time when he fed 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and two small fish, and you'd just be like, you know, I think that would stick in my memory if, if uh, you know, if, if that actually happened. I'm pretty sure that would stick in my memory. I mean, you know, can you really create a Jesus? You know, I would say pretty hard. It would be pretty hard to do. Christianity was birthed in Jerusalem, the very place you would not expect it to be able to be birthed. It was birthed in Jerusalem through the proclamation of the most fantastical claims about Jesus. And these claims were readily accepted by many there because they were eyewitnesses of them. So going back to Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus proceeding through the streets of Jerusalem with no fanfare, and this was in keeping with, with the prophecy as, as uh, John also describes, it says he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. But at the temple, God had appointed two who were faithfully keeping watch at the temple for the Messiah, the prophet Simeon and the prophetess Anna. Long decades and decades they watched and waited, and now the day had finally come for them to be led to the temple and to be led to Jesus. And the utter weakness and frailty of Jesus was of no concern to them. For they knew the prophecies. They knew that a child would be born. To us, a son would be given, and the government would be on his shoulder, and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And he, he would first come as a baby and then come as a child. It was not a shocking thing then for Simeon. And so Simeon takes Jesus into his arms and his words show us that he fully grasps the significance of this moment. Nothing was lost on him. 
He echoes Isaiah's prophecy when he says these words. He says, O sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. Remember, he had gotten the promise that he wouldn't die. Now I am ready to die because I've seen it. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. In eight passages in Isaiah, he uses a, a term to refer to the power of God to save his people. And this term that Isaiah uses is the arm of the Lord. And so in Isaiah 51, we have Isaiah crying out, Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by. Who is this arm of the Lord? Was it not you who dried up the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? I mean, who is that? None other but the Lord God. This is the arm of the Lord. Awake, O arm of the Lord. Wake, awaken like you, you acted before. Awake now. He was the one. It was the arm of the Lord that delivered the people uh, at that time out of Egypt. But then Isaiah 52 says, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. This is going to be something new. This, in this messian these messianic passages, this arm of the Lord is going to do something new, something he hasn't done before. He's going to lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations. And so when he comes, the Messiah will be the arm of the Lord, the power of God laid bare to save his people. Just imagine Isaiah writing this going, the arm of the Lord is coming, the one who's going to clothe himself with power as he did when he, when he delivered the people out of Egypt, and now he's going to lay bare his holy arm. And then we get to Isaiah 53 that says that the people will not believe it when the arm of the Lord comes. For though he is anything but normal, the arm of the Lord was going to come incognito in the most unimpressive and the most ordinary way. And, I, and Isaiah 53 is just amazing. It says, who has believed our message? Like, who, like, what is going on? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And so here is Isaiah. And he pictures for us a, a deserty, dry, cracked ground. And... And he says, okay, so, and he's looking out and he sees nothing but a desert cracked ground. And then, but, but he's saying, if, but look closely. If you look closely, you'll see it. If you look closely, you'll see it. And, and what are you gonna see? You're gonna see a little shoot coming out out of dry ground. You look closely, like, wait, where is it? It's like there, like right there, that thing right there. Wait, what is it? Look, 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 it's just going, you know, like, it's just, it's just, it's just like, just so tender so tender and weak and nothing and he's saying look that's it the arm of the Lord has come to save his people that's how stupid and ridiculous sounding the message is that little is it that's the arm of the Lord that little thing sticking up look that's the arm of the Lord he's coming to save us don't miss him and that's what Simeon was looking for and what he rejoiced in and it's what we should rejoice in and and what's so, what's so wonderful, you know, at this point when we then picture Simeon with all of this knowledge and, 
And more than anything else, he would have been pouring over these scriptures because all he was doing was waiting for the salvation. All he was doing was waiting for the Messiah. And so he'd just be pouring over these scriptures and taking this all in and so ready to meet Jesus. And, and I, I just love God's flair here for the dramatic because here we have the arm of the Lord who has no problem whatsoever uh, allowing himself to be held in the frail, weak arms of Simeon. You know, isn't that just like an incredible picture of, of, of seeing Simeon that way? And, and, and now we speculate a little bit, but I don't think it's too much. I mean, how could it be too much? You're holding the baby, what do you do? And I, you know, as he holds this baby, Simeon holds this baby, he's gotta draw him close. I mean, think of when he realizes who he's holding and he's drawn him close and his, his eyes lock with this little baby. And, and as his eyes lock with this baby, his eyes are locking with his, his little king. This is his king. And he's locking eyes with his Lord, his creator, his Lord of all is in his hands and he's locking eyes with his Lord. And I can just imagine how much his heart must have burst with a mixture of emotions as he knows the prophecies, the mixture of joy, gratitude, and I think maybe sorrow as well. For as Simeon knew, this little one would be pierced for our transgressions. I mean, he's holding the one, he's like, and he knew the prophecies must be, you're gonna be pierced for my transgressions, right? You're gonna be crushed for my iniquities. I did this, but you came and, and came to give yourself for me. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So have you received Jesus as your savior tonight? Let Simeon be our pattern for this Christmas. But maybe you say, I'm such a sinner. And I know many do, but cheer up. It's not so bad to be a sinner. It's precisely for sinners and for sinners only that Christ came to save. John tells us that all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For as Isaiah the prophet said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what we get to celebrate here. And as, as Simeon took in his arms, his Messiah, Lord, may we take him in too. And may we claim him as our Messiah. Lord, we cast our sins on what you did at the cross. Lord, we look to you for our salvation. We lean on you and your, your deliverance and salvation of us. Lord, we thank you so much that you came. Lord, when we think of, of you in this way, as the arm of the Lord coming to save his people, we not only think about you in power, but we also think about you in love. For, for yes, you are capable of doing it, but who would do that for somebody? Only somebody who dearly loves them. Lord, we, may, may nobody here miss the great love of God tonight for them. And may this be the year, maybe for some, that they would come to know you and embrace you and find eternal life in you and be called a child of God this year.
Thank you for all this in Jesus' name.